I'd like to have you turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. As we continue on in our study of the last portion of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48. The reality that we need to anchor ourselves to, that what we're going to be seeing from chapter 40 to 48 is something that is yet to happen. It is something that has been prophesied to happen not only by Ezekiel, but by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and many of the other uh, prophets of the Old Testament. It is something that Jesus has also uh, made reference to as far as the end time is concerned. And so we're to look at this as something that is yet to happen, literally fulfilling scripture to the uttermost. Not looking at it as some people do today as something that's already either been accomplished or can only be accomplished through analogy and metaphor and symbolism and that all we see is something that is spiritual. Even though we will look at certain things that we can apply to our lives as we will today, nonetheless, these are things that Ezekiel has seen that we will see one day in Jerusalem. So 13 years or so after the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC, the prophet Ezekiel was transported by the Lord back to Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. Taken by the hand of the Lord, snatched away and back to the area of Jerusalem. But in a totally different time than the first times that he was there by vision. And he was taken to a very high mountain to survey the surrounding land. And as he looked in a southward direction, he saw the framework of a city. More than likely the city of Jerusalem at a much different time. A time that reflects a new topography, new geology, new ge geography, along with a new temple. It says a very, very high mountain. And you know, if, if you look at Jerusalem today, there are mountains there, of course, but not a very high mountain. But that shouldn't bother us at all because we know and from Zechariah that uh, when Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives, everything begins to change. The valley that's before him, between him and, and the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem is going to split into, it's going to go in two different directions. So the topography of the land is going to change. So it's not anything that's, that's too hard for us to believe and to trust in that the Lord is going to have a mountain where, whereby Ezekiel will be able to see these things. So he is immediately transferred to this rebuilt city where a man of radiant bronze appearance stands 
at the, great, the gateway of the temple with two measuring instruments in his hand. And again, I refer you to chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> he has two instruments. He has a linen cord or a linen tape and a measuring reed. So it's, it's the equivalent of a measuring tape and a yardstick. But it, this, this is a really long yardstick, a very long yardstick, a really long yardstick. This angelic messenger gave instructions to the prophet Ezekiel to pay very close attention to everything that he saw and everything that he heard, that he might share these things with the people. This is the reason why each and every one of us, every time we get together to study the Word of God, we need to pay close attention to what we hear and close attention to what we see. Why? Because we are to share these things with people. And Ezekiel was to tell all the house of Israel about a new temple, a new worship, and a new land. In between all of those three things, there are a lot of other new things, like new priesthood and, and, uh, and, and new ways of doing things in the temple. But we'll get to all of that when we do. So now this messenger takes the prophet on a guided tour through the entire temple complex beginning outside the wall and moving gradually to the outer court where we'll be today, the inner court and the temple sanctuary. And in chapter 42, he will take him through the buildings of the priests as well as the high, surrounding, uh, uh, the, uh, the high place surrounding the entire complex itself. But we begin in verse 5, where it says, And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about. And in the man's hand, a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and a hand breadth. By the way, that's describing for us what kind of cubit is being used here. I'll explain in just a moment. So this measuring reed is of six cubits long by the cubit and a hand breadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height one reed. So he's saying, you know, the, the, the measuring of, of, the, of this particular uh, breadth of the building is one reed, which is one reed of six cubits long, and then the, uh, the height itself. So the breadth and the height is six cubits both ways. So we can be sure that Ezekiel took the messenger's instructions seriously as he carefully observes the angelic being measuring the outside wall. The measuring reed which he, which he had in his hand was 10 and a half feet long, 10.5 feet long. That's a long measuring stick. And uh, it was six cubits uh, long. But we're we, we were given a description that uh, it was not the normal cubit. A normal cubit would be between the elbow to about the wrist, which in most cases for most men, it would be about 18 inches long. And the long cubit with a hand breadth would be 20, about 21 inches long. So that's the reason why we, we see the description, uh, you know, the 
concerning the, uh, the cubit and a handbreadth. So it's important to note that measures were mostly derived from the human body, as I just showed you. For example, the normal or ordinary cubit was the measurement, for, as I said, from the elbow to the wrist. The longer was the length of the elbow to the end of the middle finger. So consider here now in verse 5 what it says. These are the measures of the altar after the cubits. The cubit is a cubit. Oh, by the way, that's verse 13 uh, of chapter 43. Forgot to tell you that. All right, let's not forget anymore. Ezekiel 43, 13. This is, again, just uh, re-emphasizing the length by which uh, the temple is being measured. These are the measures of the altar now after the cubits. The cubit is a cubit and a handbreadth. So once again, not reverting back to a normal cubit, it's reminding us it continues on in, in, uh, uh, in the fashion that is, it's being uh, measured. And we don't have to read the rest. Even the, cub the bottom shall be a cubit. So we'll get to that when we get to chapter 43. So the measuring reed then, the measuring reed. Now, many of your translations say a rod, but it's in fact a reed, a very long reed, of course. And of course, there would have to be uh, certainly outside of the realm of what most people would think, whether constructed to be that long or whether it was naturally that long. But uh, once again, 10 and a half feet long. That's, that's not short, okay? That's not short when you think about it. So the wall that the messenger measured was exactly one reed high and one reed wide. So it was one, one reed thick and, uh, or 10.5 feet high and, and 10.5 feet wide. The high and the wide wall surrounding the temple, and that's the wall that he's describing is the wall that surrounds the temple, is a clear reminder of the great protection and the great security provided by God through his presence upon all those who approach fully trusting and worshiping him. This is what God is trying to remind us about. Even though we know it's going to be a real wall, it's going to be a real temple, because Ezekiel has been given the privilege to see it, to tell us this is what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Nonetheless, God is always using these pictures to remind us of how he cares for those who come and truly worship him in spirit and in truth. So the temple becomes a type of Christ. Now remember that when we were talking about the symbolism of those people who don't take the word of God literally, they will usually say, well, the temple is really the church. Uh, the church that has replaced Israel, but it isn't. So understand that it's more a type of Jesus Christ that in, in its whole concept is that which protects those that come to worship him where he is. So it is the only place in Christ. Now remember that phrase because it's said a lot in the New Testament. Paul uses that a lot, in Christ. So in being in Christ is the only place where a person can worship the Lord in complete safety and security. And that's going to be ultimately, okay, because I know that today people, uh, we just heard about um, life in the South Sudan when Wes Bentley was with us this past weekend. And uh, I mean, they, they kill Christians for worshiping the Lord. They kill Christians for... For, for not wanting to revert to uh, uh, Islam and, and all. So 
the fact of the matter is they're safe now. If their lives have been given for Christ, they've worshiped in Christ, they are certainly brought to that eternal safety in Christ. But as we look at the temple here, the only place where that person or any person can worship the Lord in complete safety and security is in God himself. It is in Christ himself. I think of what it says in the first part of 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. This, is, this was a prophecy actually given to King Azza of, of Judah. And it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect or complete toward him. So he, uh, the Lord, you know, and you know, you, you can read the rest because that, that kind of describes the foolishness of, of King Azza in what he did. But nonetheless, the first part of that verse is, is, is so important for us to realize that God runs to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose, heart, whose hearts are loyal to him, whose hearts are perfect toward him, whose hearts are complete toward Christ. And of course, you know, Paul talks about being complete in him, Colossians chapter 1. We are to be complete in Christ. Well, you know, we do, the, the, the reason why we're here on this earth right now, why we're here in this place right now, worshiping the Lord, why we're here reading the word of the Lord, why we're here studying the word of the Lord, is because every day we want to be more and more complete in Christ. I can tell you this, we're never going to be fully complete in Christ while we're on this earth, but we will be complete in Christ when we're with him in heaven. Y'all understand that, right? I mean, because we're going to go up and down in this life. I mean, we're going to make our mistakes in this life. And then we're going to find some times of real growth, right? Then we get so excited, yes, Lord, then comes the next challenge. So, you know, the Lord knows how to temper us. He knows how to bring us back to that place where we just humble ourselves. And we need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. But God knows our hearts, and when we worship Him, listen, I would love to know your hearts when you worship. I would think that I know most of you that I, that I do know, you know, that I could say, oh man, you know, they have such a wonderful heart, I'd love to have their heart of worship. But I don't know everybody's heart, but God does. He knows each and every one of you. And He knows you more than, more than just by name. He knows you by action. He knows you when you're by yourself. He knows you when you're alone. He knows you when you're in the dark. I mean, he knows everything about you. Ah, it's scary, isn't it? But, but it isn't. Not scary, but, but you know what? It brings us to an understanding of what the fear of the Lord is. The reverence that we're to have for the, for the Lord, the respect that we're to have for God. Because he knows us. That just humbles me. When I, when I see people who say that they're believers in Jesus Christ and they're not humbled by the things that God does, I, I just, I'm, I'm just amazed. I, I wonder where their heads are. Because they're thinking more with their heads than with their, uh, and believing in their hearts. Psalm 34 verse seven says, the angel of the Lord encamps around about them that fear him and delivereth them. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, reverence him, respect him, worship him, and he delivers them. Isn't it great to know that God himself 
You know, when we consider the, the term the angel of the Lord, we're actually many times speaking about Jesus himself in the Old Testament. Makes an appearance as the angel of the Lord sometimes. And he encamps around. He encamps. You know, when you think about the camp of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt and they had the, you know, the, they, they built a tabernacle and then the Lord said, I'm going I'm to, that's where I'm going to meet you in the tabernacle. And he had all the camps round about the tabernacle and everybody facing the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord would come down upon the tabernacle and it would be, you know, a, cloud of, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And people would be looking at that and then they'd come to worship the Lord. They could only get so close. They encamped around the tabernacle. God says, but I encamp around you. Isn't that a great feeling to know? I mean, isn't that a great thing to know? That God encamps around those who trust him, who love him, who worship him, who believe in him, who fear him with reverence. Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4, many of you are familiar with this. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shall thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. All of these passages I'm sharing with you tonight are, are, are passages that should encourage our hearts that when you are facing one of your greatest trials, God's with you. God is the Almighty. And when you need to be under the shadow of the Almighty, he says, here I am. It's your secret place where you can dwell where you can abide. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow. And he is our refuge. He's our fortress. And those are great things to know about God when we are in times of great need. A refuge. A fortress. A deliverer. Psalm 125. Verses 1 and 2. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. Where the temple is going to be, Mount Zion. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. And I would include all those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as his people, and therefore he he surrounds us. He is round about his people. Round about his people. Proverbs 3, verses 24 through 26. Consider all of these things. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and, the, and thy sleep shall be sweet. There's so many people today in our day and time that are, you know, they, they look at what's happening in the world, they watch the news, <laughs> and they just like, they can't sleep. They don't know what's gonna happen. 
tomorrow. Some of them don't even know if there's going to be a tomorrow. Now we as believers in Jesus Christ know that there, there will be a forever tomorrow no matter what happens on this earth today. We can be at peace just like this proverb says. To lie down and not be afraid. To lie down and let our sleep be sweet. Why? Because our thoughts and our hearts are not trying to forget what's happening in the world. You can't forget it. Because guess what? When you wake up, you're going to watch the news and you say, oh, here we go again. New things happening. New problems to deal with. Ah, but who deals with them? You, me, or the Lord? I'd rather let him deal with things. As a matter of, he, as a matter of fact, he said, you know what? I'm in control still here. I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. Already. I've seen it. If he, if he were to say those words to you right now, don't you think you can say, hey, I can sleep tonight because God's seen what's, what's going to happen tomorrow. Some of you are thinking, really? Yes. That's how much he loves you. He said, I've got this in control, man. I've got it. And we got to let him have it. I mean, don't let him have it, because if you let him have it, he's going to make you have it. No, let him have it all. Cast your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Cast your cares upon him. And then it goes on to say, Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it cometh, for the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Wow. The enemy does all he can to take you, to take you down, to take you away, to take you out. But God says, no, no, he's got to deal with me. If you belong to God, devil has to deal with God about you. Devil has to deal with you. I'm usually a good boy, putting my, taking my ringer off. Okay. The Lord shall be thy confidence. Second Timothy chapter one, verse 12 says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep. And that word keep in the Greek literally means to guard and to protect that which I have committed to him. Now, these are all promises that God has made to each and every one of us that believes in him. Okay, so that's just a, well, a major example of how the scripture itself continues to show us the types of things that will affect our lives now, but will greatly affect it, of course, when the Lord Jesus comes. So the messenger now leads Ezekiel to the east gate. So let's start looking at the gates here and the outer court and all these other things coming up. 
Verse 6 says, Then came he unto the gate which looketh toward the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold of the gate which was one reed broad. One reed broad. So the, the, the threshold of the gate was ten and a half feet in length. And the other threshold of the gate, which was one reed broad. Again, ten and a half feet or six long cubits. So it's, it's in verse 26 of this same chapter that gives us the number of stairs that would climb to the gate's passageway. So it talks about stairs, but we have to understand that this is the same stairs that is being told about in verse 26 of this chapter. Notice what it says, and there were seven steps to go up to it, and the arches thereof were before them. It had palm trees, so on and so forth. But the, the fact of the matter is the, the steps number seven. And again, seven uh, numbers are very important to the Lord. And the number seven is a very important number in Hebrew and to the Jewish mindset. But seven itself is a number of completion. It is a number of God's fulfillment. It is a, is a, it's a great number. In fact, seven is a, the number of completion. The eight is the number of new beginnings. So we can put a lot of emphasis on, on on other numbers, like 40 is a number that's when we see it in scripture is usually dealing with judgment and, and, uh, and um, of course uh, three is a very important number as well, uh, triune God and so on and so forth. But seven is a very important number uh, in, in Hebrew and, and it is a very important number in prophecy, both in the Old and the New Testament. But uh, it says there were seven steps to go up to it. And uh, so the steps that we see in verse 6 are those same steps. Then came he into the gate, which looked toward the east, and went up the stairs thereof, and measured the threshold. Now, I have to say that at this point, it would only be fair to say that not much can be said of the dimensions given in this text that would give us any indication that it would all be understood until the day that we are able to see the temple itself in the millennial kingdom. Uh, I, I know that there are a lot of people that have just read through this passage very quickly and just say, well, let's read it. Uh, we can't understand it till it happens and so on and so forth. I think that we can understand a little bit of it. So I want to make that, uh, you know, make that clear that we're going to do our best to understand certain things about it. Later on, we'll see more as we move on into uh, chapters uh, 41, 42, and 43. But uh, for this reason, I'm going to give you two small, I, I've, I've given you two small charts. Y'all got the chart? Okay. I'm the only one that didn't get one. I should, I don't know if there's going to be any charts showing here today, up here, but uh, can somebody run and get me one? <laughs> you got an extra one? Okay. All right, the, um, the, the one in color, which says temple size comparisons, let's just look at that one real quick here. Uh, just in terms of the dimensions alone that we're gonna be seeing throughout, this, uh, throughout the last part of uh, Ezekiel, you'll notice on the left-hand side, Ezekiel's temple. 
You'll notice on the right-hand side, on, on the top, is Herod's temple. Notice the size difference. And then below that is Solomon's temple. A much uh, smaller uh, area used. Next to that is the court of the tabernacle, which is the tabernacle that was built by Moses out in the wilderness. So that was even smaller. <clears throat> and then, of course, we have to put the American football field in comparison because that's how we think in the fall, you know. <laughs> because we're always just kind of looking, you know, like on Sundays after church. So we got this football field in our brains. Okay, so there's, which one would you rather go to? I can't wait to see here, I mean, uh, uh, Ezekiel's temple. I've seen enough football fields in my day. Ezekiel's temple, huge. Okay, so go to the backside now. And, and let me just point out a few things uh, because we're not gonna go into great detail here. It looks like a schematic. I think somebody told me it looked more like an ele electrical schematic here. But um, the W's, of course, mean the windows. The, uh, the letter C is the uh, chambers. Uh, we'll talk about that here in verse 7. The, um, the porch or the vestibule, which will be mentioned in verse 7 also, is over on the left-hand side, the larger room. That's the porch. And then there are the... Uh, uh, the threshold, the thresholds are, uh, there's actually just a couple of thresholds uh, of the gate where the, the, where the entrance is, by the way. And then uh, you'll notice um, in the middle, they're just giving you the dimensions where it says C, six, C is six cubits. And then where it says five C, and you'll see that when we read the text, okay? So I'm just kind of preparing you for what's being what's about to happen. There's a, uh, on the far right side, you know where it says 25, that's 25 cubits. Uh, and then inside of that to the left is the 10 cubits. All of those you're gonna read and then you'll, so it gives you an idea of, of where the borders are, where the spaces between the chambers are, that's the five cubits. Uh, and also the B's are the borders and there's some spaces there as well. So, uh, well, this is kind of the overall height of the gate systems of the outer court, okay? All right, with that in mind, then let's... Um, it's just an artist's conception of the dimensions of the gates of the outer court, as you see in, in Ezekiel 40, verses 6 to 16. And, of course, the other side is the chart comparison, the side comparison. So in any event, we're going to seek the Lord's understanding both literally and symbolically of all these dimensions. And certainly you can get on the internet and you can look at, uh, you can type in Ezekiel's temple and you'll see hundreds and hundreds of pictures. Some of them contradict each other, which is always the case on the internet and others that might, may be as, very, as close as possible to the dimensions that we need to see. So let's, uh, let's read the rest of this text and focus our attention as best as we can on the meaning. Verse 7, let's go back now and just read this. It says, And every little chamber was one reed long, 
and one reed broad. And again, remember that the reed is 10 and a half feet long or six cubits long, or the six long cubits. And between the little chambers, if you keep an eye, one eye on, on your paper there, uh, the C's, it says, uh, and between the little chambers were five cubits. So you'll notice the, uh, the space where it says S, those are the spaces between the chambers. And those are five cubits. And the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate within was one reed. So that goes uh, back over, let's see, to the threshold. Okay, that would be where the T's are. Then measured he the porch of the gate, eight cubits. That's on the left-hand side of your page. And the post thereof, two cubits. And the porch of the gate was inward. The posts, of course, are the columns. Those are not seen in this particular view, of course, but they are the ones that stand. You know, when you consider three dimensions, now you're thinking of what goes up. And that's pretty, that's pretty tall. So 10 and a half, uh, 10 and a half, you know, that's, uh, that's a lot. That's 21, <laughs> 21 feet. And then measured he the porch where we got that, and the post thereof, uh, two cubits, and uh, the porch of the gate was inward. And the little chambers of the gate, eastward were three on this side and three on that side. They three were of one measure. In other words, they were all the same uh, size. And the posts had one measure on this side and on that side. And once again, the posts had the same measurements. And he measured the breadth of the, in the entry of the gate, 10 cubits. That's over on the right-hand side, if you'll notice. The breadth of the entry of the gate, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. The length of the gate. The space also before the little chambers was one cubit on this side, and the space was one cubit on that side. That's the borders, so the B's are those one cubit uh, lengths. And the little chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that side. He measured them. He measured then the gate from the roof of one little chamber to the roof of another. So now we're outside of this dimensional picture here, uh, one dimensional or two, but now you, you know, we're going up again. The breadth was five and 20 cubits, door against door. He made also posts of three score cubits. Three score cubits would be 60 cubits. Uh, three score, a uh, score would be 20. So three scores is 60. What was it that Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address? Four score and seven years ago. That's 87 years ago. Okay, so three score is 60. He made also posts of three score cubits. Posts. Now, remember, posts. <laughs> uh, three score cubits, that's, that's pretty high even unto the post of the court round about the gate. So those would be at the gate. And from the face of the gate of the entrance unto the face of the porch of the inner gate was 50 cubits. That 50 cubits you see at the very bottom now, giving you the length of that particular court. 
And there were narrow windows to the little chambers and to their posts within the gate round about, and likewise to the arches. And windows were round about inward, and upon each post were palm trees. We'll talk more about the palm trees later. But while we were looking generally at the dimensions of the gates and the outer courts here, let me just give a, a, a little detail about a few things. First of all, in verse 7, we have mention of chambers. We have mention of chambers. These chambers would be for the use of the Levites who watched at the temple gates. In fact, they were guard chambers, such as were mentioned for storing of utensils, the storing of musical instruments, because remember the Levites also did the worship of the temple and other important matters, as we see, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 4. Uh, when uh, at the beginning of the reign of King Josiah, we're told in 2 Kings 22, verse 4, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered uh, of the people. So it was in those chambers in the older temple uh, that uh, they kept, uh, you know, the offerings of the silver in, in this in these particular chambers, or at least in some of them. If you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, 1 Chronicles 9, verses 26 and 27, it tells us here, for these Levites, the four chief porters, were in their set office and were over the chambers and treasuries of the house of God. So again, chambers in a general sense were just storage rooms, storage rooms for utensils, storage rooms for the things that they use for worship but it was also the storage room for the offerings and for the, uh, the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged round about the house of God because the charge was upon them and the opening thereof every morning pertained to them. And so they had a very, uh, a very significant job, but they also had a very important job, I'm, I'm looking for this one word here, to, to say that it was a, a very serious job that they did at the temple. It wasn't to be taken lightly, in other words. The, the language here is just letting us know that what we do for the Lord is serious. Everything we do for the Lord is a serious matter. It's, not, it's never to be taken lightly. And then in verse 9, if you look at verse 9 of our text, we're told of the posts that were on either side of the doorway opposite one another. Their dimensions pointing out that they were quite, quite tall. In verse 12, we are introduced to those spaces. Uh, for example, the borders and the spaces thereof, which are to be seen more as boundaries. The spaces were like boundaries. So lastly, in verse 16, the, uh, the mention of narrow windows. Now I want you to see that. Verse 16 says, and there were narrow windows. Suggest, the word narrow here suggests that since they didn't have glass, they were, they were somehow closed, but the only way that they could be closed, uh, and, and the word narrow here also suggests that they were latticed windows. Lattice, I know some of you have lattices in your home, in your garden, you know, you have your, you know, the uh, lattice to hang your rose bushes or whatever. 
so th that's how they closed the windows, you know, so that they would have uh, a certain amount of light and yet at the same time to allow a certain amount of air to come in. But they didn't have glass uh, for, those, for those things. So they were fixed in the chambers themselves. Inside of the chambers, they had the fixed lattices. So that's about all the detail that we're going to deal with tonight. We will deal with a lot more detail in our next study. But as we focus our attention on the gates and the gate system shown to Ezekiel by the messenger, it would be good to know that these gates are the gates of the temple of Messiah. They are the gates of the temple of Messiah. Again, this is the messianic kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom. This is the kingdom that is yet to come. This is the kingdom that is going to come when Jesus himself comes back to Jerusalem with ten thousands of his saints to establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. That is millennium, the millennial kingdom. Jesus will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. It will be a totally different earth because, as I said, the topography and everything is going to change. The land that was promised to Israel will be Israel's land from the river Nile to the river Euphrates. All of that will be Israel. It was promised by God to them. It will be given by God to them. But the gates of the temple of Messiah serve as a reminder that the Lord God has provided a way into his presence. Gates will always represent the way into his temple, into his worship, into his presence. There truly is a way. There truly is a way to become acceptable unto God. There is a way. There has always been a way. There was a time when there wasn't a way. But there has always been a way when the seed of the woman began to pass from Seth, Adam, Seth, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way to David, and David to the King Jesus. That, in a sense, is the way. There is a gate. There is a door. There is a way to approach him, to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Lord will indeed receive us. Because that's certainly a question, you know, even, even Thomas himself said. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. We should all know by now that the gate and all the gates of the temple whether we're talking about the tabernacle or we're talking about the temple built by Solomon or Herod even. But every gate, or Zerubbabel's temple, but every gate was to represent access into God, the only way to have access.
So we all should know by now that the gate, the door, the way into God's presence is Jesus Christ himself. There is no other way. Jesus made that clear. This has been a very prominent theme of our study of the Gospel of John, what we're studying on the weekend, on, on Saturday and Sunday. Jesus declaring that he is the door. Remember that he said, I am the door. I am the gate into God the Father's presence. John 10, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, or if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. Safe and secure. Why? Because he is in the presence of the Father. He is in the sheepfold of the Father because Jesus is the door of the sheep. And then Jesus declared that he was the way and the only way to become acceptable to God the Father, the only way. In answer to Thomas's question, he said, unto him I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm the way, the door, the gate, the way. The Word of God itself declares time and time again that Jesus Christ alone gives us access to God the Father. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. And therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, one of the things that we want in life today is access. We want access into, you know, uh, movies. We want access into concerts. And we, you know, well, you don't have to pay for these things, right? You want access, you got to have a credit card. You gotta, nowadays, you have to have, you know, somebody getting your credit check at the door of a movie theater, you know. Crazy expensive as they are. We want access. But we need access into the presence of God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus is that access. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God because of Jesus Christ, the door, the gate, the way, the only way the only truth, the only life. Paul in Ephesians 2 verses 14 through 18 says, for he is our peace. He is our peace who has made both one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, who are believers in, Ye in Yeshua, in Jesus Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hostility, even the law of commandments, containing ordinances for to make in himself of twain one man, one new man, to make of himself of two Jew and Gentile, one new man so making peace. I'm here to tell you that as believers in Jesus Christ, there are three distinctions in the world. There are the Jews, there are the Gentiles, and there are those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Three, not, 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 not two, three. Because in those who believe in Jesus Christ, you'll find both Jew and Gentile. So if you are a Gentile by, by birth, let's say just you know, by DNA as it were, 
When you come to Jesus Christ, you're not a Gentile anymore. You're a saint. If you were Jewish and you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua is your Messiah. You may be Jewish by DNA, but you are a saint. You can be both if you want to be. I mean, what I'm saying is, it's best to be the saint. <laughs> it's best to be the one who says, I am separated unto the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am separated from the world, separated unto Jesus. So those are the three distinctions here. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. We, both Jew and Gentile, have access to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, we're one. We're the church. The body of Jesus Christ. And he's the head of the body, the church. Go to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, and it says, According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him to come to the Lord and the creator of the heavens and the earth. And lastly, we look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus access through the veil. We all know that in the temple at the time of the, of the death of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus died, after he said, it is finished, to telestai, it is finished, and he died on the cross, we're told in scripture that the the veil of the temple, the veil in the temple, the curtain that only the high priest could go through to offer once a year the sacrifices, uh, to offer the blood of the sacrifices for the sins of men, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year. On that day that Jesus died, we're told that the veil which was probably almost two feet thick, was ripped from top to bottom as somebody, as if somebody just took it and ripped it in half. And the whole idea behind that was to say, access by the blood of Jesus Christ has been made to enter into the most holy place for you and for me and for anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ. And how can we come in boldly, confidently, assuredly because of what Christ did, not because of what we are or who we are, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, there's the veil. And having a high priest over the house of God, who's the high priest? Jesus, man, he's the altar, he's the sacrifice, and he's the high priest. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near now 
by a new and living way, the way of Christ, the way of Christ, the only way, the door, the gate. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. But I add verse 23 to this because now it's up to us by the strength and the power that God gives us through his Holy Spirit and through the power of his word. Of his word. He says, let us hold fast then. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Be steadfast in your faith. Don't waver. Don't move to the right or to the left. Stay steadfast in Jesus Christ. And he says, for he is faithful that promised. Now, where's it be steadfast? But he's faithful. Do you know why? Because Paul said one time in the book of Philippians, he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we make ourselves available. We are to hold fast to our faith because he's faithful who promised. Wonderful, isn't it? So you're not alone. God didn't say, okay, you guys work it all out and when, you're, when you finally work it out, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll grade you. See who's good enough to come through, the, come through the veil. How many of us are good enough to come through the veil? Not one of us. Not one of us. How many of us can come boldly through the throne of grace because of what Jesus did? Every one of us who believes. Amen? All right. So the temple and the gates, everything is of spiritual significance, but it's not only spiritual significance that matters. These are things that are going to happen. They still represent something that will remind us of what Christ has done for us. Amen? All right. We're probably going to cover a lot more ground next week so we can get closer to, to finishing uh, up this particular section. But I, I want to be a little bit more uh, uh, careful about certain details. So what, what needs to be detailed will detail what needs to be just kind of given as, as a general uh, view, then, then uh, we, we can do that.